0: From 1979 to today.
1: This is episode 2.44 Strange Bedfellows, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and a week long Soccer Awards fan.
0: And I'm Nina, new to Zeta and impressed that Haman is more than just a pretty face and an evil aura. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 303 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporters, Manny F., Richter S., Donald F., Noctis, David H., Ron G., Barry F., Spirit System, and Joe S. Some of you may have seen this on our social media or Patreon page, but we hit a couple of milestones this past week. The Patreon reached $2,000 a month, and we reached 300 subscribers. We are so grateful for all of the listener support and excited to see the podcast grow. In Dispatches from New York, I don't have much of an update to give this week. The inability to relax out of doors is getting to us. We're worried about the situation in states that are opening up. We know a lot of people who will be affected because they will have to go work outside the home. The situation in New York seems to be improving, but not as much or as quickly as anyone had hoped, given the measures put into place. It's tiring, y'all. That's all I've got this week.
1: This week, we return to Zeta Gundam, and we are covering Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam episode 43, Haman's Victory. After the recap and our talkback, we have some research on a new mobile suit that shows up in this episode. You'll find out which one after the talkback.
0: But first, let's tune in to the Titans News Network.
1: This is the NRX 055 Transformable Mobile Armor, codenamed Bound Dock. Nearly 30 meters tall. Bristling with mega-particle cannons, and 130 tons fully loaded, it is a state-of-the-art war-fighting, insurrection-crushing machine. Accompanied by a squadron of new Barzam-type mobile suits, this bound dock is ready to take on anything AU can throw at it. But it's not just the mobile suits, the battleships, or the colony lasers. It takes something more. It takes the heroic spirit of Earth bearing the full weight of gravity inside each and every titan. Our pilots are the elite of the elite, expert soldiers drawn from loyal Earthnoids. All throughout the Earth sphere, they have been fighting for you. Now it's time for you to join them. In disordered times like these, the people need a strong and righteous military to lead them The once weak and divided Earth Federation is now under the leadership of the Titans, a very different administration than any it has known before. Together we oppose the greatest threats the Federation has ever faced, but we will never run from them. Anyone who doubts the strength or determination of the Titans should look to the fate of those who oppose us They will doubt no longer. The Titans are power. Become a Titan. Embrace power.
0: When you think of the Titans, you think about heroic pilots, like the famous Lieutenant Jared Mesa, and battleship officers like Captain Gadi Kinsey but there are countless ways for you to hasten our inevitable victory. Rise quickly through the ranks with priority promotion by volunteering for the Titan's Colonial Security and Pacification Corps. Qualified applicants with chemical engineering degrees or HVAC experience may be eligible for a signing bonus after their first completed mission. Experienced with childcare or speedboat operation? Join the Hong Kong Auxiliary's Intelligence, Kidnapping and Ransom Division. Or make them pay, make them all pay, by signing on with the Cybernewtype Development Brigade. Be more than you can be in the Cyber Type Brigade today. No applicant is too young.
1: Sorry to interrupt, Lieutenant daughter, but I have a call for you from the Gate of Zidane Admin Bureau. They say they are returning your call about scheduling a time to use the colony laser for one of your projects.
0: Yes, thank you. Put them through. Hello? Yes, I was hoping I could reserve a firing slot in the next week, or before the end of the month at the latest. Yes, it's for business purposes. The target would be the production interns occupying TNN Tower. Okay, thank you for checking. It's reserved until when? For what? As a tanning bed? Captain Gotti? Well, I guess he could use some color.
1: And now the recap for Haman's victory.
0: Grips 2 and the colony laser are nearly in range of Granada. With few options left, Melanie Hugh Carbine sends a special envoy to the Argama. The officers and pilots gather on the bridge to receive the envoy, along with Beckner and Katz representing the crew of the Radish. It seems that Carbine wants them to attempt to negotiate with Axis once more, breaking up the alliance that leaves Ayug so overpowered. But there are enemy, Katz blurts out, and it's clear that none of the younger members of the crew like this idea. But Char's response is more measured. They don't know yet whether Axis is truly an enemy or not, and he agrees with Bright that they should follow orders and complete the mission. Later, in the passageways of the ship, Bright and Camille have stopped to talk when they overhear an argument in a nearby room. It is Emma, loudly scolding cats and fa, who feel they cannot participate in this mission. The underhandedness of asking Axis to turn traitor and the total inability to trust Axis make the mission anathema to both of them. After hearing this, Bright enters the room and asks if that is truly how they feel. When they reply with a confident, yes, he orders them both to the brig until the mission is completed. After they've gone, Emma points out that Fawn cats aren't the only ones on board who are against the mission. But Bright is adamant that this is precisely why those two had to be punished. He cannot have them running around the ship, voicing their defiance and damaging crew morale. Camille is the one who flies out under flag of truce to request a meeting from Haman on the Guaran. He has kept carefully under guard his entire time on the ship, but Haman acts gracious and tells him that there is no need for the Argama to send anyone to the Guaran. She will instead go to the Argama to meet with them. Once Camille takes his leave, one of her officers questions whether it's wise for her to go aboard the Ayug ship, but she is curious and wants a chance to examine the Argama firsthand. On her way in, she buzzes the bridge in her new mobile suit, the kubele. Once aboard, she meets with the officers of the Argama, who have been authorized to accept Axis's terms, the return of the Zabi family. Ayuk's backers have also agreed to cede side three to Axis control. "'What would you have done if we did not accept the return of the Zabi family?' Bright asks Haman. "'We would have begun a massive nuclear assault on the earth,' she admits, with a small smile." In return for these concessions, the Guadon will destroy the Titan's colony laser. But before Haman leaves to begin the mission, she insists that Shar ask properly. He removes his sunglasses, bows, and politely begs Haman's assistance. With a laugh, she agrees, reassuring them that she keeps her promises, and they will have first-hand proof of the might of Axis. While the Guadon gets into position, the Argama and the Radish will stage a feint, keeping Titan's forces distracted. As the launch sirens blare, Camille takes normal suits to the brig for Katz, Fa, and the kids. He leaves the door to the brig unlocked before launching himself. Katz asks Fa if she wants to go, but instead of answering she asks back, What about you? Still a bit petulant, Katz says that obviously he cannot leave without Bright's permission. Fa looks down at Shintan Kum asleep in her lap, clearly thinking about how normally she would be fighting to keep them safe. Pacing the bridge, Bright and Shah acknowledge that if the Guadan betrays them, the Argama and the Radish will be lost. On the Dogos Gear, Basque seems amused that such a small Ayug force would attack them and orders his own mobile suit teams to launch. At the same time, they receive a message from the Guadan, offering to support them from the rear. Basque accepts the offer, but does not really trust Haman, and orders Gadi and the Alexandria to keep an eye on their Axis associates. But Haman is too clever for them. She orders the Guadan maneuvered to the rear of the colony laser, where it will not be visible from the Alexandria. She means to fulfill her promise to Ayug, but also to further her own schemes. They will target one of the colony laser's nuclear pulse engines, rendering it inoperable for now, but doing minimal damage so that they can use the laser themselves at a later date. All this time, Ayuk's mobile suit pilots have been fighting, but they are outnumbered and there are no more reserves to launch. Fa senses that Camille is in trouble and immediately rushes to the bridge, Kat's Shinta, Kum chasing after her. She begs Bright to let her launch and he releases her and Katz from their confinement. They arrive just as Camille is being swamped, providing much-needed backup. But Ayug forces are still struggling. What can be taking Axis so long? The Guaran finally fires, and retreats quickly out of range of any Titan's ships. Recalling all his mobile suit teams, Basque orders them to pursue the Guaran. When one of his officers questions whether it is more important for them to continue defending Grips 2, Basque punches him so hard he staggers across the room. Haman has an excuse ready. It was all an unfortunate accident, as they were aiming at the Argama but missed their target. She can continue to play both sides off against each other, to her own benefit. After the battle, Shar visits the Guadan, kneeling before Minerva in the throne room. She gives a little speech, adult and formal, thanking him for his service to the Zabi family. As he leaves, Haman whispers theatrically to Minerva that this operation has delivered Ayug into their power, and it was all thanks to Char.
1: Haman's Victory
0: And a more fitting title I cannot possibly imagine, because... She maneuvers the situation pretty cleverly.
1: And she gets both a political victory, which is getting Ayug to agree to her demands, as well as a personal victory, which is that she gets to make Char lick her boots all but literally. (laughs) She really, really goes out of her way to humiliate him. Repeatedly in this episode, too.
0: I honestly think it's less about humiliation and more about a... Well, maybe this is humiliation... Put him in his place for him to understand that he is not in charge. He does not get to make the decisions that he is in a position of subservience and he needs to behave like it.
1: Absolutely. But I do think that that is uh, humiliating for him. I think she takes personal pleasure in seeing him humiliated in that way. I mean,
0: he handles it with grace.
1: He does. Certainly much more grace than the first time around. But in that first scene, before she agrees to do what Ayug is asking of her, even though they've given her exactly what she wanted, uh, she forces him, she makes him beg her. And then at the end there, when he is paying homage to Minavazabi uh, with Haman up on the throne, and she, like, as he's walking away, says loudly enough for him to be able to hear, yes, and this is all thanks to Shar. It's him who will help us revive the Zabi family. Like... Just rubbing rubbing his face in it, gleefully.
0: But this is part of what's so clever about her situation, because Aya wouldn't have proposed this if they had other options. They cannot win. They cannot defend Granada without Axis. And Granada, though this is not spelled out, is too important to lose, I have gotten the impression from previous episodes that in addition to having secret bases in Granada, military bases that are full of your mobile suits and ships and repair facilities and so on, that it is probably also a center of manufacturing for the material that AU require.
1: Yeah, I think I can confirm that for you without treading into spoiler territory.
0: The loss of Granada would possibly end AU's ability to fight the Titans completely.
1: Granada is also the closest thing that A.U. has to a capital. It's the spiritual center, almost the homeland for their movement. And to lose it, it would be a huge symbolic blow. If Ayug can't even protect Granada, like what colony would trust them?
0: So she knows she has them over a barrel <laughs> the moment they come to her. And we know from things she says later about using the colony laser themselves that they never really intended to stay allied to the Titans forever, this is convenient for right now, they're really on their own side, and they're perfectly happy to pit one side against the other as needed. They managed to just fulfill their promise to Ayug by causing just enough damage to render the laser inoperable for now, but not so much that they can't use the laser when they want to sometime in the near future. They have a ready excuse, so they haven't actually ruined their alliance with the Titans. They're sitting pretty.
1: And basically everyone knows that this is the game. Katz and Fa are the ones on the Ayug crew who actually object very stridently to this deal. But it's clear that everybody knows what Katz says, which is that this alliance with Haman and Axis is only temporary for as long as it's convenient for everybody involved. At any moment, they could be shot in the back by the Guadan.
0: And they know how vulnerable they are. Bright points out, if Haman had chosen to betray them during this battle, they would all be dead. They would have lost both ships. That would have been it.
1: And Haman's excuse there at the end about, oh, we were aiming for the Argama, but we accidentally hit grips. No one is going to believe that. Not really, but it doesn't matter because at some point in the future, despite Basque's anger with her now, it might become convenient for the alliances to shift again, and then everyone will pretend that they believed that excuse. I love in that initial negotiation when Haman says are you prepared to accept our terms? And Bright says the people backing Ayug are prepared to accept it. He doesn't say I'm prepared to accept it, or we're prepared to accept it, or Ayug accepts it. He's very precise in his language.
0: I interpreted that less as a sort of personal deflection, and more as we're not an autocracy. We're not a kingdom. It's not about whether we accept you, it's about whether the organization mm-hmm. accepts you. I have to backtrack a moment because there were some visuals when the orders first come down from Melanie Hugh Carbine that they are to engage in a negotiation that I want to examine a little more closely. When Camille specifically asks Char, do you agree with this plan? Char grimaces, sort of like, (laughs) I don't not agree with the plan. (laughs) Um, You know, he uh, and I want to work on what he says in Japanese a little bit later. But he says, we don't know for sure that they're against us, basically. (laughs) However, when Bright confirms we are going to do this, Camille looks over at Char, and Shar has a tiny bit of a smile on his face. So despite the fact that Char does not trust Haman, and we know this, we know he doesn't like her, trust her, want to work with her, something about working with Axis does appeal to him. I found myself wondering in that moment if that's why Camille complies so readily And then volunteers to be the one to go over. Hmm. He can tell Char thinks something about this is promising or something about this is an opportunity or is good. And he trusts Char enough or he's curious enough about Char's motives (laughs) to be part of that.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that has to be right. And that makes what Camille says about the mission, because he says to Emma, like, orders are orders. Uh, But then he says, and this particular mission seems really interesting. I think that must be what he's talking about. Something about the way Shaw reacted made Camille curious what was really going on. Camille's whole presentation in this episode is really interesting, especially compared to where he was just an episode ago with Rosamia uh, and the breakdown he had toward the end. Because instead, uh, in this episode, he's a bit taciturn. He's a bit sullen, especially at the beginning. But he's very in control of himself. And we see him presented in opposition to Fa and Katz. Fa and Katz, who uh, let their emotions get away with them. Fa and Katz, who can't bring themselves to hide their feelings about this operation. You know, everybody in that scene thinks this operation is distasteful. Camille, Emma, and Bright all clearly don't want to do this, but they're all hiding their feelings, which. In previous episodes, Camille has established that hiding your feelings is a very adult thing to do. And he, in previous episodes, not that long ago, less than five episodes ago, like thought that that was the worst thing in the world and he hated it. And now he is on team Conceal Don't Feel.
0: I thought that was such a good scene where Emma is telling off fine cats and then Bright appears and then he asks them what they think. And when they tell him straight out, he's like, all right, that's it. To the brig with you. Mm-hmm. I cannot have you talking like this around the rest of the crew, basically. Did you notice the facility with which Katz dodges the <laughs> incoming bright slap? Almost as if he's expecting it.
1: Yes. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah, Katz is also a very interesting character in this episode. Um, but I will also note in that scene, I was paying particular attention to Haro. mm We've said many times now, Haro represents a kind of spirit of childhood. This is why Camille possessed Haro early on, but then passed him on to the children. Why Camille's clinging to Haro was an issue for his superiors and is what got him beaten so badly by Wong Lee all those episodes ago. Here, uh, it's Haro that brings Bright and Camille into this conversation. And so Camille is holding Haro when the conversation begins, but By the end of it, Haro goes with Katz and Fa. Haro is with them along with Shinta and Kum in the detention chamber. But at the end, when they go out into the fight, when Katz and Fa decide to sortie after all, uh, Haro stays behind. Haro separates from them at that point. So we can see here for Camille, Katz and Fa, there's a crossing of a threshold in this episode, not an impermeable one. They could always go back again. We've seen that happen a lot in Zeta, but they are accepting some version of adulthood here.
0: I did think Katz's comparison between them asking Axis to turn traitor and the Titan use of G3 was a little much.
1: Oh, totally. Yes, 100%.
0: (laughs) hang on. (laughs) Yes, it's subterfuge, but...
1: Well, this is kind of like when Camille said that Emma betraying the Titans was the same thing as Recoa betraying Ayuk. It's a kind of very childish, and I, I don't mean that necessarily in a negative or a positive way. It's just a thing, but it's a very childish way of looking at things. It's very black and white. A thing is either good or bad, and if it's bad, like all bad things are equivalent and all good things are equivalent.
0: You mentioned cats and fa and the childishness there. And it's making me think about the scenes of them in the brig a little differently. Very shortly after they go in there, you know, Camille comes and he drops off normal suits for all of them and he leaves.
1: I love that scene, by the way.
0: It's great.
1: It shows such a more mature Camille.
0: Cats can tell immediately that Fa has already changed her mind. Like the minute those sirens sounded, she wanted to be out there. And that is because and I thought this was so eloquent and beautiful, there's a shot where Fa looks down at the orphans and they're sleeping in her lap. She wants to protect them. That has been one of her driving reasons to continue being a pilot, is this desire to protect the kids and this knowledge that if she doesn't go out there, then they will. (laughs) They've tried it before. Mm -hmm. That her going out there prevents them from having to, and protects them.
1: And that is part of the responsibility of being an adult, is to do those difficult, unpleasant things, to accept those compromises, to sacrifice your own personal, like, ideological beliefs in order to protect the children.
0: That there are more important things. And cats, perhaps hanging on to that childishness a bit longer, says, I can't leave without permission.
1: Yes. Yes. <laughs> like, I focused it on that line too.
0: Right? Because Fa doesn't wait for permission. Fa, I think Fa hangs back initially because she doesn't want to abandon cats. Mm-hmm. Having gotten into trouble with him, she doesn't want to abandon him here alone. She doesn't want to leave him to be the only one suffering punishment. They got in this together. They should get out of it together. But then when she senses Camille, she doesn't wait, <laughs> she runs. And she begs. She's like, please let me go out.
1: Well, because she senses that Camille is in danger. And as much as she wants to protect the orphans, she also wants to protect that orphan.
0: That while ideologically she is opposed to this idea, her desire to protect people she cares about overrides that.
1: Now that scene is great visually as well, because first Fa senses Camille and it's very internal to her. The camera is like really up close on her face. And then it pulls out. Uh, We see that she's sitting there with the kids, but Katz next to her is like actively meditating at that moment. He's sitting in Cesar. His eyes are closed. He looks like he's meditating, although he has uh, like the most petulant expression on his (laughs) face. Um, But Katz has not sensed what Fa has sensed.
0: Did you notice the fight that causes her to feel this, the fight between Camille and this Hambrabi? Is very strange because we do not typically get this kind of fight scene between a main character and an unnamed faceless baddie. This kind of scene is usually reserved for named baddies.
1: Yes, for clashes <laughs> between rivals.
0: Because it is, it's a uh, close in, clashing of beam sabers, you know, straining against each other fight where we don't even see the enemy's face. It's very unusual, but I have to think they made that decision because they needed that level of tension to lead into Fa sensing the fight.
1: And part of that is just the sheer number of enemies is putting even pilots like Camille under a ton of strain. But part of it is that unlike in first Gundam where Amuro plus the Gundam was just at every stage leagues better than your average Zeon pilot, in Zeta... The field of power is much flatter. Camille is a good pilot. Camille is even a great pilot and and a good soldier, but he's not that much better than any enemy pilot. And Lizeta is not that much better than a Barzam. It's certainly no better than a Masala or a Kaplant.
0: It does help reinforce, I think, the team dynamics, because it means he gets into trouble. You know, he is in some danger when Fa and cats arrive. And this has become a a sort of almost silly pattern through Zeta. This happens so often that just in the moment when someone is in the most trouble, their reinforcements arrive. (laughs) The Eagles, the Eagles.
1: A shot from off screen saves you at the last possible second.
0: Right. Uh, But it does hammer home. Camille can't do it alone.
1: And then when Fa and cats arrive first, they're together in the same frame, flying in quite close formation in a way that you probably wouldn't actually do in space. Uh, the unlikeliness of it and the unusualness of it compared to other shots really does drive home the connectedness of these two pilots. And then Camille joins them. The three of them fly off into the battle together and continue fighting together for the rest of the battle. It's great. It's kind of like a like the three of them united again after being separated early on in the episode. Yeah, Fa is a treasure in this episode. Justice for Fa. (laughs) Although it's funny you mentioned things that have become so repetitive as to become kind of silly, how many scenes now have we had of Fa on the bridge of the Argama trying to convince (laughs) Bright that she should be allowed to pilot?
0: She doesn't have to try very hard in this one.
1: Oh, yeah. And the reason that he objects to her piloting is like different each time. They're not always exactly the same scene, but... Uh, It does keep happening.
0: There were a couple of moments with Camille that got me thinking. (laughs) Uh, The first one is when he arrives on the Guadán and he's surrounded by soldiers who are all holding weapons. And he's like, typical zombies.
1: (laughs) I have this written down too.
0: How would he know? What does he know about the zombies?
1: He watched a lot of movies about the war.
0: (laughs) It's just very funny to me that he w- has an idea of what the zombies are in his head that is entirely manufactured or based off of history
1: books. It was only seven years ago. like. Yeah, well, he was 10. like He would remember the war.
0: It's true. He would remember the war. He would remember the propaganda mm-hmm. around the war even mm-hmm. more, probably.
1: Well, and maybe he's commenting on the like swarm of guys with guns. But maybe he's commenting on the fact that they're all wearing like the same uniforms, mm. the same old normal suits and carrying the same old guns.
0: Although, as Katz points out, Ayuk is not so different from the old army either.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I wonder what old army Katz is referring to there or by Katz, really, I mean the scriptwriters.
0: I assume he's referring to One Year War Federation.
1: Probably and his yes. his
0: memories of that, and then what he's been told after the fact by his parents. And is that
1: before or after Bright tries to hit him?
0: It's before because that's what makes Bright try to hit him. <laughs> I think the other Camille moment that really got me thinking in a in an abstract sense about the philosophy of the show, really, when Haman mentions that Axis's plan ultimately was to nuke the Earth, just nuke it into oblivion. Camille gets very angry and Emma has to hold him back. Why should a lifelong space-noid care what happens to the Earth?
1: Well, there's two possibilities, I think. Um, either Camille cares about the people who live on the Earth, which we know Camille tends to care about like people at least in an abstract kind of way.
0: But he doesn't he doesn't reference the loss of life.
1: True. He talks specifically about the Earth in a in a general kind of way.
0: Right. He he comes back to sort of Char's philosophy of further pollution of the earth. But their discussion of the earth is very abstracted. It's very much about this idea that if we damage the earth too much, there will be a point of no return after which it cannot recover. But that assumes that there is some sort of like state of nature and that it is desirable for some reason to people who don't even live there. I I think that's interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Like, it's one thing, like, we all live on the planet Earth. Doing things to ensure that the planet remains livable and not just livable for us, but livable for other creatures that call the planet home is desirable. But nothing in the way Char presents his philosophy or that Camille regurgitates it seems to indicate necessarily a concern for the biodiversity of the planet. Not specifically. There's very little about like animal rights or specifically about wildlife.
1: I mean, it lacks specifics in general. There's this
0: sort of vague ecological goal, but it's very vague. And that's kind of what he harkens back to. Not, oh, she wants to kill billions of people. Not, oh my God, the planet could be like a decimated of all life. It's odd to me (laughs) that we have these space noids with this very vague idea of preserving sort of the cradle of humanity, but at the same time, never intending to go back, never intending to have any ties to it or be dependent on it in any way. They mean to be entirely independent and to leave it behind them. But also, it's very important to them that it be preserved.
1: Uh, This feels the way you're describing it now a little bit like the way um, young adults feel about their childhood homes mm. or about their, their like memory of the family. Like It is the desire to go out into the world to separate from your own past, to make your own way, and yet always to preserve what had been and like the emotional response that a person has when they find out, for example, that their parents have decided to sell their childhood home.
0: Or even just, oh, we turned your room into an office or <laughs> <laughs>
1: like, Right. But but if the family home is changed anymore, then it won't be the family home anymore. And the family home is important to them, even if they don't want to go back, even if they don't ever want to live there. I think this is a really good moment to stop and talk about the motivations of our main Ayuki characters. This episode reveals some of them. Fa's motivation, for instance, is clearly to protect the people around her. And, you know, we sort of just talked around Quattro's motivations and Camille's motivations, although they're vague and nonspecific, we can kind of have a view of them through that. But what about cats? What about Appley or Emma or Bright?
0: For Emma, sadly, I think Emma's goal is oppositional. She's not working towards something. She's working against the Titans. She came to a point where she saw what the Titans were willing to do and she found it unacceptable and felt that they needed to be stopped. And that's why she is where she is.
1: She's a professional soldier. She has to be in an army. She decided she didn't want to be in the Titans anymore, and that left very few choices.
0: Bright is a shade further along the spectrum. Again, career army. I don't think he would have left the Federation if it were not for the overwhelming influence of the Titans.
1: It's a fair question to debate whether joining AUK really counts as leaving the Federation.
0: Technically, yes.
1: (laughs) It's often talked about as a, like, faction within the Federation. Really? Yes.
0: Hmm. Based on what I've seen in the show, that is not an impression I've had even a little bit, but Mm. okay. Yeah, I I don't get any sense that Bright is particularly attached to the idea of freedom for space-noids or of humanity leaving the Earth. (laughs) He... Wants to stop the Titans. He thinks the Titans are out of control. Yeah, I think
1: Bright fundamentally thinks that the Federation is the right, like, governing body to be in charge of the Earth's sphere. He doesn't object to it on principle. I think Bright wants good governance. Like, Bright wants a good version of the Federation to exist.
0: Not to be dismissive of Katz, but I think Katz is young and knew there was a war going on because his adopted mm-hmm. dad was involved in it. And so... He wanted to be involved, too, and also felt to some degree that he had a right to be.
1: Having been on the white base in the past war, having been so close to Amuro, the great hero, and then growing up in Hayato's family, I I just wonder if for Cats, it's not about like, because it's not really about protecting people. And if it's about opposing the Titans, that's not something he's ever like.
0: He mentions that the Titans are underhanded and you know, dangerous and commit horrible atrocities. But it doesn't seem like his motivation for being here. And I don't think his motivation is protecting anybody in particular.
1: <laughs> and yet he was so desperate to join the war because he's a little bit younger than all the rest. It's like he was terrified that the war would be over and he would miss his shot, like go out and, and prove that he's one of those hero types too. But I do want to say about Quatro that Whatever Quattro's motivations, I think he's facing a pretty severe challenge right now. Because for the first time since he started this, he is no longer free to do as he pleases.
0: He spends the whole battle sitting on the bridge. <laughs>
1: yeah, Bright won't let him go out. And this was mentioned in the previous episode as well, but Quattro has become someone who can't be risked in battle that way. And what's really interesting about this is that Quattro has stepped up to become the leader of a quotation marks attached around that. And in doing so, he has lost that power that he had earlier on in the series, where even though he wasn't in charge and even though he wasn't giving orders, his whims and desires nonetheless became the policy of the Argama. Now, now that he's in charge, he, he actually has, to has less power. <laughs>
0: Well, now that he is in a position of power, he can't afford to be capricious. He has to respect the hierarchy.
1: (laughs) This is the worst thing for him. This is precisely what he wanted to avoid by taking on the Quattro Bagina alias.
0: We've mentioned this before, and I have to bring it up again. It's always significant when he takes off his sunglasses. To put it simply, anytime he removes his sunglasses, he's emotionally vulnerable. The mask has come away. We're seeing the real him. He is exposed. He does this twice. He does it when Haman is like, I don't think you know how to properly ask for a favor. And he removes his glasses and he bows and he asks very politely for Haman's help. And he does it in the mystery ship forest, <laughs> which we need to talk we about. <laughs> we need to talk about
1: that.
0: But he's sitting on a bench with his back to the camera, but we see him remove the sunglasses and put his head in his hand. And this is directly after the scene where he's had to see Minneveh acting in a way that we know deeply upsets him. She's acting more or less like an adult and also talking about the glorious return of the zombies, where Haman has rubbed in that he has effectively aided in delivering Ayug to Axis. And there's nothing he can do about either situation. You know the first one he makes himself vulnerable as a means to an end. he does it willingly. the second one feels like him kind of collapsing <laughs> into this very unfamiliar sensation of helplessness. Mm-hmm. but yeah, where have they been hiding a forest all this
1: time? You know. <sighs> <laughs> I actually did some poking around to try to find if anybody had come up with a good explanation for this. And I couldn't find one. Mm -hmm. Not on the English side and not to the extent I was able to search the Japanese side of the fandom. Uh, It's occasionally joked about. Um, I've never seen an actual explanation for it. I think there's three possibilities, which I will lay out as follows. (laughs) One... Somewhere in the Argama's habitation block, there is some kind of, like, forest for oxygen generation purposes. (laughs) Wibbly-wibbly-woo. Maybe a lot of the trees in the background were just painted there, and it's, uh, you know... It's just for the mental health of the people on the spaceship. That's and reasonable.
0: And we've never gone there before.
1: Well, everybody in Zeta has such good mental health and they have so many resources available to them, like, like psychologists and therapy sessions, that it's never been necessary before. Char, in fact, in this moment is the saddest that anybody in Zeta has ever been. Second possibility. We know Rekua had a lot of plants in her room. <laughs> we know they went somewhere, but we don't know where. Maybe this is Rekwa's plant storage. Uh, And then possibility three, which I'll admit I think is the most likely, it's a mistake. I think this was probably animated with the intention that this scene was not happening on the Argama.
0: When I first saw the scene, I assumed they must have stopped in Granada, that he was in some park in Granada. You know, Camille was going looking for him. Emma stops him like, no, leave him be. But anyway, that they were on the moon. And the only thing that undercuts that, but it is kind of a big thing, is that the closing scene of the episode is the two ships flying out in space. We see that they are clearly not on the moon.
1: And in fact, it's a direct fade from the park scene to the ship's flying scene. And the reason I don't think it's actually a chamber inside the ship, or at least that it wasn't intended to be, is that it's just too big and the way the sunlight filters through the leaves doesn't look simulated. And there's no, like, they don't do anything in the visuals to hint that That is the case. And I think this is an episode that has some other indications that something went wrong in the production process. First of all, as we noted when we watched it, the animation quality throughout most of the episode is actually pretty bad, especially people and faces. Not great. On the other hand, the animation quality during the battle, very high quality. Yes.
0: And it's a noticeable difference as you watch the episode It's not a little bit better. It's like completely different (laughs) levels (laughs) of quality.
1: And secondarily, if you pay close attention to the narration at the beginning, you'll notice the narration is explaining away the absence of Rosamia. Because it's saying, oh, what she did after the previous episode and, and so on. Narration is an easy thing to add. It's probably the easiest thing to add. You don't have to animate any moving lips to match the sound. You can write it after the episode has been made. And if you look at the way the Zeta episodes work as a whole, taking kind of a larger view of them, you will see a lot of episodes that don't entirely feel like they're in the right order. Like the events that happen in them are sort of disconnected, or you'll get a storyline that advances every other episode instead of every episode. Which leads me to believe that somebody in the like planning of these episodes was kind of not doing their job at this stage in the show. And I could see how that would lead to continuity errors like a scene of Char crying in a park in Granada accidentally showing up when all the characters are actually on the Argama. Here's another visual note, which you picked up on. The emblem in the Zabi throne room is slightly different from what it was last time. Yes. This is important to us because we did a whole research piece on what that (laughs) emblem looked like and, and where it came from and what its visual influences were. So a small change like that is something we would pick up. And I would describe the change as what you would get if a different artist tried to draw the same thing, but was working not from a visual reference, but from a description.
0: Yeah, I was just thinking that someone gave a description of, oh, there should be an emblem and it should look like this. They were like, okay. And so we got something not quite the same.
1: Oh, lest it pass unremarked. You will all be happy to hear Nina really likes the cubelet.
0: It's so bug-like and weird. And great. And great. Yes, I do like it.
1: <laughs> I can assure you many people have been waiting with bated <laughs> breath, chewing on their nails to find out whether or not you like it. Oh,
0: dear. Yes. Well, Well, I do like it.
1: How much do you like it?
0: I like it a lot, but I think I would prefer a slightly different color scheme that white or just slightly off-white is sort of meh.
1: And now for Nina's research, part one of our ongoing investigation into the Kubelé.
0: I must begin by giving credit where credit is due. Tom gave me the seed of this research piece. The long-awaited Kubelé has finally been introduced, and it turns out that it is yet another mobile suit named for a figure from ancient mythology. There is a goddess whose name is spelled C-Y-B-E-L-E, or sometimes is begun with a K in English, we would probably pronounce that Sybil or Sibyli. But in modern Greek, it's more like Kivelis. Apparently, I should have taken Greek in college. My lack of ability to pronounce Greek is proving a real weakness <laughs> in making this podcast.
1: I don't know why Zeta Gundam would have so many Greek words in it. Super weird.
0: And in Phrygian, the language in which we have the oldest recorded name for her, it is Mater Kubelia or Kubeleia which means, scholars think, mother of the mountain. It doesn't seem like much of a stretch to see kubeleya as the origin for the mobile suit Kubere. Our first evidence of worship of kubeleya dates to the early first millennium BCE. It originated in Anatolia, with the most lasting characteristics and features established in Phrygia. Phrygia is in west-central Anatolia, in what is now Turkey, centered on the Sangorios River. Many popular stories from Greek mythology actually feature Phrygian kings, including Midas, famous for turning all he touched to gold, Gordius, of the Gordian Knot, later cut by Alexander the Great, and Migdon, who famously warred with the Amazons. An unsurprising caveat with these dates is that, depending on how synonymous she may be with similar mother goddesses of different names, her worship may have begun even earlier, under the name Kubaba in Karchemish, a Neo-Hittite city on the Euphrates River. From Anatolia, it spread throughout the Mediterranean region, including Europe, Western Asia, and North Africa. The earliest archaeological evidence is an inscription in Phrygian, which addresses her simply as mater, or mother, but in some cases her title and address include the word Kubileia, or of the mountain the word from which her later name, Kybele, derives. In later Phrygian, Greek, and Roman texts, she is often referred to as Great Mother and Mother of the Gods. Rome actually formally solicited the Great Mother to be a deity of the Roman state, on the recommendation of an oracle, who told them that doing so would end the famine they were under and enable them to finally beat Hannibal in the Second
1: Punic War. Scholars of Roman history will remember, of course, that they did eventually beat Hannibal in that war, so the oracle must have been right.
0: The Great Mother was transported from Anatolia to Rome and installed in a place of honor on the Palatine, among other distinguished cults of the Roman Republic. What exactly was transported, I wondered? Well, at one location, she was venerated in the form of an unshaped stone of black meteoric iron. It was this stone, or part of it, that was removed to Rome. But what exactly was she the goddess of? What were her characteristics? Well, she was somehow simultaneously Mother Earth, Mother of the Gods, the Mother and Protectress of all human and animal life, and Mother of the State. She was rarely associated with fertility in the form of childbirth agriculture or animal husbandry. Instead, earliest depictions of her associate her with mountains, hollows, and wild places, sacred space in the natural environment. She was also a protector of the state itself. Iconography in funerary texts suggest she was also associated with the unknown, or possibly a mediator between the worlds. Hmm. She's often depicted flanked by lions or with birds of prey. In Greece, she became mother of the gods and assimilated with Ge, the Earth, mother of the Titans, and Rhea, the Titaness, who is mother of the six major Olympian gods. But she remained essentially foreign and very exoticized and associated with ecstatic personal devotion, which was pretty diametrically opposed to Greek worship that centered on communal devotion and the city-state.
1: I am getting a strong feeling of Like, otherness associated with this goddess. Like, she's venerated in cities, but is viewed as being from and of the wilderness. She is an icon of mystery, and you worship her in in strange ways. She's part of the pantheon, but doesn't really belong there.
0: That's going to continue. (laughs) She was said to arrive in a chariot pulled by lions and accompanied by wild music and lots of wine. There are associations with Rhea and Dionysus, who had similarly wild rites associated with them. Dionysus was also considered a foreign god.
1: Also Anatolian, if I remember correctly.
0: And, in his case, Kubileia was said to have invited him into her home, cured him of madness, and inducted him into her own rites and mysteries. She retained her association with the mountains, but that transformed somewhat into also being associated with town and city walls, and she retained her associations with nature and wild animals. She was said to have visited a plague on Athens when one of her priests was killed there, although this story may have been a later invention to explain why Athens contained a temple to a quote-unquote foreign deity. It was also in Greece that depictions of Cuelia began to incorporate a hand drum called a tympanon, commonly associated with foreign cults, and was also part of the rites of Dionysus and Rhea, although among these, only Cubelia holds the tympanon herself. In Rome, she maintained this role, but also became the protector of the Roman state. In Virgil's Aeneid, she is Aeneas's protector, and she was also considered the mother goddess of Troy, from which many patrician families considered themselves descended. But there was still considerable ambivalence toward her in Greece and Rome, and debate about her worship. The wild and ecstatic nature of her worship was considered very un-Greek and un-Roman, as well as possibly being disruptive to the very social order.
1: Not to mention that the Greek and especially Roman societies were ultra-patriarchal, extremely misogynist in their attitudes toward women, especially women holding any kind of power. So this great uh, female deity who is a protector of the state and holds immense power would have made them feel very uncomfortable even if they were happy to make use of her.
0: Also, most or all of her priests were eunuchs, which was a point of controversy. Unlike other Roman priests who were citizens, could inherit property, and were expected to marry and raise families, Coelhea's priests were eunuchs, which meant that they were forbidden citizenship or inheritance. They are also described in a great many texts as being effeminate and flamboyant in a way that did not jibe with Roman society of the time. (laughs) These factors made them objects of both fascination and scorn for most Romans.
1: I remember that with other cults like this, the Romans would actually import priests from outside of the Roman city. Was that the case here?
0: Unclear. They know that for a time, Romans were forbidden from becoming her priests, And that that ban was at one point lifted, but it's not entirely clear where her priesthood came from. Many celebrations that were held in her honor pointedly excluded her priests. Huh. What information we do have about her worship is based on monuments, hymns, and poetry. Her cult appears very prominently in works of many or even most major authors from the late Republic to the early Empire. Latin authors often painted a negative, unflattering, and even sinister portrait of Kubilea, which fits with what you mentioned about their feelings about women with power. (laughs) These portrayals had a lasting impact on how the goddess was viewed and her place in history, literature, and myth. One source cites Catullus's poem 63, in which Kubilea is associated with madness, violence, and destruction unlike our contemporary maternal view of mother goddesses in which they are nurturing, comforting figures, this ancient Mediterranean mother goddess is vengeful and fierce. I haven't yet addressed Attis, and that is because it's a bit complicated.
1: (laughs) What's Attis?
0: Sources describe Attis as Kubilea's son, consort, attendant, or some combination of the above. In Phrygia, Attis was a common name and a title for priests, or possibly priest kings. In the Phrygian version of the story, Agdistis, which is another name for the Great Mother, was born, bearing both, quote, male and female traits. This made the other gods afraid of Agdistis, and they cut off her penis and threw it away. It grew into an almond tree, like you do. And Nana, daughter of the river god Sangarius, plucked up an almond from the tree and held it to her chest, thereby becoming pregnant. Like you do. She abandoned the baby Attis and he was raised by a he-goat. But he grew into a beautiful young man and Agdistis saw him and became enamored of him. However, he was set to marry someone else. Full of jealousy, Agdistis struck him with madness, causing him to castrate himself and bleed to death. Like you do. Feeling somewhat repentant, she saw to it that Attis was resurrected, and that his body would never age or decay. As a god in his own right, Attis was associated with vegetation, which grows, seems to die, and returns again in spring. In a Roman version of the story, Attis castrates a king to repel his unwanted sexual advances. But the king, before he dies, castrates Attis, and Attis bleeds to death at the foot of a pine tree. Priests of Kubeleia discover him there and bury him, and the Great Mother's priesthood were said to castrate themselves in his memory. Some of the Roman era rites involved the spattering of the temple and a cup pine with real or symbolic blood. They used violets for the symbolic blood. I'm not sure why violets exactly, hmm. but, but also sometimes the priests just like cut themselves up and danced around wildly so that blood would go everywhere. While there were certainly animal sacrifices done to other Roman gods, this kind of very sort of emotional and wild display was unusual.
1: The Romans had kind of a complex relationship with the expressions of public emotion. For instance, when someone died during the funeral procession, it was important to have lots of big displays of public mourning. Which is why you hired professional mourners who did that all the time. And they would tear their clothing and pull their hair out and, and do all the things to express their mourning for the person who died, which kind of saved the family from having to express too many emotions. Stoicism was a powerful virtue, especially for men.
0: Interestingly, a lot of the information that we have about Kabylea and her worship in Rome was actually written by early Christians engaged in polemics against Roman religion.
1: So you can imagine how reliable it is.
0: Several sources I looked at discussed possible connections between the Great Mother and the Virgin Mary in Christianity. There is a lot of discussion of whether and how pre-existing female deities were sort of subsumed into Mary or was Mary sort of defined in relation or juxtaposition to them? Does she... Fill an empty void, or does she represent sort of a link in a chain? You know, the similarity between mother goddesses who are mothers of the gods and Mary as god bearer, which is one of the ways she's described in sort of early Christian Greek. Uh, But any in depth discussion here would require another research piece or three. (laughs) Sadly, my (laughs) academic background does not include early Christianity, so I would be starting from scratch. But Tom informs me that the Kubelé will stay relevant for a while, so it is likely we will return to this topic.
1: In my defense, that is not a spoiler. She has already seen the box art for Double Zeta, and the Kubelé is on it.
0: One of the books that I read excerpts of made the point that in the 1980s, women's movements spurred an interest in female divinities, and particularly mother goddesses. And we've already discussed in a previous episode how Axis iconography aboard the Guadán is based in that contemporary interest and scholarship into female priesthoods, ancient religious traditions that elevate female divinities. We already know that influence was present in the way that Axis is being depicted and characterized. And so to have it come up again here doesn't feel like a coincidence. It seems pretty clear to me that Haman as mother of the state or mother of the founder of the state works really well. Her position as mother figure to Minerva, who as the last remaining Zabi embodies the monarchic state, is very clear. She's fierce. She's vengeful. She's protective.
1: She is the protector of the state, especially when she enters the Kubelé, especially when she takes on the greater power of the mobile suit. She is the guardian of Axis Xeon.
0: Her attendants are mostly men. We get frequent scenes of her surrounded by male soldiers. For some reason, Axis appears to have very few women soldiers or none, except for Haman. And considering Char's antipathy toward her and her need to put him in his place brings back the whole Edis story you know this idea of Haman unwilling to let Ayug have Shar, right? If she is not going to use him for her own purpose, nobody will. Especially given the way Zeta is written, I think this is a a fair phrasing, castrating Shar of power and authority.
1: She is certainly uh, emasculating him in this episode.
0: You know, consider his choice of pseudonym. Right. Once more.
1: We can presume that Shar Aznable became Quattro-Bajina sometime after he left Axis. Indeed. When he came back to the Earth sphere. After all, Mineva remembers him as Shar. So it must have been after whatever happened between him and Haman on Axis after the war.
0: And throughout Zeta, we get these various different images of what womanhood means and different ways of embodying being a woman. You know, We have Emma as the sort of career woman. We have Recoa and Sarah's devotion to Sirocco. We have Fa's protective instinct over these children. These different conceptions and depictions of what it means to be a woman clearly interest the writers. And so we can see how... This goddess who embodies the wilderness, who embodies a protective power that's not strictly grounded in motherhood, might be of interest to them.
1: Absolutely. I mean, what is the asteroid belt if not wilderness? What is the asteroid axis if not a mountain in space? The mountain from which the Kubelé comes.
0: Next time on episode 2.45, Stronger in the Broken Places, we cover Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam episode 44 and the protective power of a grudge, Sirocco plays favorites, acting out for attention, a woman totally without shame, pouting. The PX-3 is upon us! Jared Mesa, Hero of the Federation. Horrible ways to die in space. And she was unconscious for like 10 minutes.
1: That is super bad for you.
0: You will see the tears of time.
1: Remember to do all of the podcast things. Subscribe and review Mobile Suit Breakdown wherever you get your podcasts. Then pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown on Patreon, where you can find great bonus content, get access to the MSB Discord, get exclusive MSB merchandise, and you know, support the podcast. You can also follow at Gundam Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, and like us at facebook.com slash for all kinds of extra content. And you should always check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for all of our episodes, show notes, watch list, wish list, some other lists, and more. Plus, you can always email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or share your wrong Gundam opinions with the world by shouting The problem with Zeta is that it doesn't have enough characters who show up, spend two episodes making Camille upset, and then disappear for between five and twenty episodes. Out your window at passersby we might not hear you but the world needs to know the tnn this week included mistake the getaway and for the fallen both by kevin mcleod and special thanks to listener Serperoth for his assistance with the modern greek pronunciation of kirelli the intro song is wasp by misha dioxin and the closing music is long way home by spinning ratio you can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. There's a particular angle where they show the Guadan from like the front, and it looks real ionic. And of course, the Jupiter is super phallic. Uh, when he is paying obeisance when obeisance obeisance, obeisance.
0: making obeisance mm. I usually are obeisance paying, I'm going to
1: go with paying homage because I know okay. how to pronounce that
0: <laughs> At, the first time I wrote that mm-hmm. I was like on their axis allies and I was like wait
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's not going to work Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I'm having a lot of trouble getting yeah. through today. Well, oh. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blame my headache for making it so that I cannot talk properly.
1: Remember to use a number two mobile suit.
0: Number two.
1: As much as she wants to protect Fast cars, motorcycles
0: Or no, it's after? I don't remember now
1: It's that scene though
0: It is that scene I think it's before I think it's
1: before because after he's like Yes sir, I'll go to the brig now sir
0: Yeah Isn't mythology great?